Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 and verse 11, and can be found on page 957 in the Pew Bibles. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Today, as Pastor Greg has mentioned, marks the first Sunday of Lent. And we have observed Lent as a congregation over the last four or five years. But perhaps Lent is something new to you. And Lent uh, is a 40-day season of anticipation and preparation for Easter. And 40 days minus the Sundays, the Sundays are considered non-Lenten feast days, right? so 40 days between Monday and Saturday. And the season of Lent encourages us to adopt a posture of introspection, contrition, repentance, fasting, in preparation for Easter. So what Advent is to Christmas, Lent is to Easter, and Easter is the culmination and the reminder that our hope is fundamentally not in the things of this world, but in Christ Himself. So, in the spirit of the, of the season of Lent, as Pastor Greg has already mentioned, but perhaps some of you have come in uh, in the last few minutes, we're doing it a bit different in our service format throughout Lent. Our service will begin with a Lenten posture of contrition, confession, introspection, and then it's going to end in celebration, communion, and worship, which means that the sermon is going to come earlier in the service than would be typical for us here at Calvary, which then allows us to get to communion earlier, which allows us to get then to celebration and worship earlier. So if you're used to coming to the 11 o'clock service, as some people like to refer to it, uh, you might find yourself uh, coming in uh, during a part of the sermon. So I encourage you as much as possible to get here uh, at 10.45. I know it's hard, and especially if you have kids, that can be tricky, so uh, no judgment, but just want you to know about the service change so you can work your schedule accordingly. In any case, this morning we begin our Lenten sermon series, Feasting in the Wilderness, and the series will focus primarily on the book of Exodus, which recounts Israel's redemption arc, its deliverance out of Egypt, and then the Passover lamb, the Red Sea crossing, the bread from heaven, the water from the rock. And as we get started with the series, I want to use this morning's sermon to establish a key theological framework for how to think about Israel's redemption arc in relationship to the church's redemption arc. Because these two, as we'll see, are connected. Now, our overall goal for this sermon series 
is to show that Israel's sacramental life prefigures and informs the church's sacramental life. So in the coming weeks, we're going to have two sermons about God getting His people ready to feast in the wilderness. And those, those two sermons are going to focus on Israel's prototypical baptisms that we see in the book of Exodus. And then in the next two sermons, we'll look at the actual feasting in the wilderness. We'll focus then on Israel's prototypical communions that, again, prefigure and reveal the church's communion. So through it all, we're going to see how the church's sacramental life is prefigured in Israel's sacramental life. So for those of you that have ever wondered, what do we do with baptism and communion? I don't quite get all the details about baptism and communion. This sermon series then will be for you. But this morning, we start our sermon series not in the book of Exodus. We start a sermon series here in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul is talking about the events of the book of Exodus. So let's look here, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. We'll start there. And in verses 1 through 4, Paul is drawing out the connection between Israel's sacramental experience in the book of Exodus and the Corinthians' sacramental experience some 1,500-ish years later. And the events that Paul is recounting here in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, these are all recorded in the book of Exodus, particularly in chapters 14 through 17, which is where the majority of our sermon series will be, verses, uh, chapters 14 through 17. But look here at chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, I, want you, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he says, when he says our fathers, he's referring back to the nation of Israel, the forefathers of the nation of Israel, the patriarchs, as it were, the beginnings of the nation. And he says, um, all of our fathers were under the cloud. And he's referring to Exodus 14, the first half of Exodus, when the nation of Israel has come, had come out of the land of Egypt and are out of uh, the captivity of Egypt, and they've made it to the shore of the Red Sea, but they're trapped between the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army on the other side. And in Exodus, we read in 1424 that the Lord came and hovered as a cloud of glory over top of the people of Israel. And that's what Paul is referring to here in, in 10.1 uh, when he says that the fathers were under the cloud. He's talking about when they were about to cross the Red Sea, they were under the cloud of God's glory. And then, of course, he says they all passed through the sea, referring to the Red Sea. And then he says, he links these to... to uh, to baptism, he says, all of these, all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then he goes on to say in verse 3 that all ate the same spiritual food. And verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink. The food that he is referring to can be found in Exodus 16. It's the manna from heaven. Right? So the Children of Israel out in the wilderness, God gives them miraculous provision of bread from heaven, Exodus 16. And then he also gives them miraculous provision of water from the rock in Exodus 17, which we looked at last week in Moses' story on Mount Sinai. And then Paul closes out this section here in verse 4 by saying the rock that followed them, the rock that they drank from, the rock was Christ. 
So Paul wants to connect, clearly wants to connect Israel's experience coming out of Egypt and their sacramental life of baptism in the cloud and baptism through the sea and their communion, as it were, in the wilderness with the bread from heaven and the water from the rock. He wants to connect all of these together. And this sacramental focus becomes even more particular in the course of Paul's uh, chapter 10 here because by the time we get down to verses 16, 15, 16, 17, Paul then specifically introduces the theme of the Corinthians' sacramental life and communion. But in verse 4, what does Paul mean when he says that the rock that was with Israel in the wilderness was Christ? When he refers to the rock, and he's talking about Exodus 17 in particular, when Moses struck the rock, and opened up a way for the water to flow out to the people. When Moses struck the rock, and Paul calls the rock Christ, does this mean that Moses was hitting Christ in Exodus 17? So that Christ was there, and Moses took a staff and hit Jesus, maybe in the shins, perhaps in the shoulder, you know. Is that what is going on? Well, no, because we can look down at verse 11. Verse 11, Paul writes, now these things happened to them, and he's referring to all the things that have happened in Israel's history. He's mentioned more things, which we won't get into today in verses uh, 6 through 10. But all of these things, including Israel's exodus out of Egypt, happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What he's saying in verse 4, what Paul is saying about the rock being Christ, is that when Moses hit the rock in Exodus 17, the rock was an example or a sign of Christ. And this helps us understand everything that Paul has just said in 10, 1 through 4. Israel's Red Sea crossing is an example of baptism. Israel's miracle food and drink in the wilderness is an example of of communion. Now, the Greek word translated in verse 11 as example comes, uh, is the Greek word tupikos. And tupikos, it's an adverb, and it literally means typically or typologically. So verse 11 could be literally translated. Now, these things happened to them typologically. Now, I've talked about typology before. I've talked about types before. And last week's entire sermon, if you were here, was based on a typological reading of Exodus 33. And so even if you don't know, you couldn't define typology, you're not quite sure what it is, that's a new term for you. If you came last week and you followed the sermon, you perhaps understand typology even though you can't necessarily explain it. So I think we know it better than we'd be able to talk about it. But I want to talk about typology again, become more precise in helping us understand it because our whole series is going to be built around a typological interpretation of Exodus, of the, of the history of Israel in Exodus. So we need to understand what's going on with typology. And I also want to type, talk about it because the, the English word example that our translation here uses to render tupikos is a word that actually clouds a little bit of Paul's meaning. And I want to draw out the distinction between types and examples, because these are not exactly the same thing, and the difference between them yields some different interpretive results. All right, so let's start with an example. An example 
is simply another instance of the same thing. It's another instance of the same basic reality. So Joe Biden is an example of a U.S. president. Gerald Heastand is an example of a good-looking pastor. You guys (laughs) get the idea of how this works then, right? An example is just another instance of the same basic reality. But in Scripture, a type is a thing that signifies or makes visible or points towards something greater than itself, what's called the antitype. So the key feature of a type and what makes it different than an example is that a type points to something higher, something greater. So an example just points horizontally to another version of the same reality. But a type points up to a greater, higher reality. So there's always an escalation of the type or when you move from the type to the antitype. So a secular illustration of a type, and I've used this a number of times here, so this may be familiar uh, to you, but a secular illustration of a type can be seen clearly in the relationship between the wax image of an emperor's signet ring and the signet ring itself. So when the emperor wrote a letter, he would seal the letter with hot wax. And while the wax was still wet, he would roll his signet ring through the wax, and the symbol on the wax was called a type. It was a type of the emperor's signet ring. The emperor's signet ring is the antitype. So when the governor of Judea, for instance will get a letter from the emperor in Rome. The governor of Judea maybe, maybe hadn't even met the emperor in Rome or hadn't even seen him, but he would see the type, the wax image of the emperor's signet ring, and he would know that the letter, the scroll, came from the emperor. And the image in the wax seal, the type, would remind him of the emperor's authority and power. So the wax type always points beyond itself to the greater reality of the ring that it signifies. Okay, so, but if we were just talking about examples, an example of a wax seal would just be another wax seal. Examples don't point beyond themselves to any higher reality. An example is just another version of the same thing. All right, so here in verse 11 then, When Paul says that the events of the Exodus were typological, he's not simply saying that what happened to Israel in their deliverance was just another version of the same old deliverance that happens to the church. He's saying that the church's deliverance is greater. It's an escalation of Israel's deliverance. So to maybe make sense of this further, we can think about two timelines. Think of the first timeline as Israel's typological timeline, let's call it, which contains the basic events of Israel's redemption arc and much of what Paul has already referred to in our passage here. So there's Israel's enslavement in Egypt to Pharaoh. Then there's the Passover lamb, which Paul doesn't mention here in this chapter, but he does mention earlier in 1 Corinthians which we'll be getting to in this series. Then there's the Red Sea crossing. 
And then there's the bread from heaven on the other side of the Red Sea. There's the water from the rock. And then finally, there's the entrance into the promised land. And so we might think, if we were only thinking of one timeline, that if we had more room on this timeline, more room on the slide, we could just keep going and eventually we would get to the church's place on the timeline. She had more room to the right. And we could add things like the birth of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, baptism, communion, and eventually new creation. But for Paul, really for the whole New Testament, there are actually two timelines. Israel's earthly typological timeline and the church's heavenly eschatological timeline. And the church's heavenly eschatological timeline is the antitypal fulfillment of Israel's typological timeline. So it doesn't just lie next to Israel's timeline in just another sequence of events, but actually drops down from above as the fulfillment of Israel's events. So Israel's slavery to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt prefigures or points typologically to our slavery to Satan in the land of sin. Israel's Passover lamb prefigures or points typologically to the atoning death of Christ. Israel's Red Sea crossing prefigures the church's baptism. Israel's manna from heaven and water from the rock prefigures the church's communion. And Israel's entrance into the earthly promised land prefigures the church's entrance into the heavenly promised land. In each instance, the New Testament moments of deliverance aren't just more examples of the same Old Testament things. The church's New Testament redemption arc is the fulfillment and the escalation of Israel's Old Testament redemption arc. This is made particularly clear in the last part of verse 11. So if you look back down into your text there, in verse 11, Paul says that the events of Israel's history, the Exodus in particular, were recorded in Scripture for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. In Paul's mind, all of human history turns on the arrival of God into the world in the person of Jesus Christ and then the release of God out into the world through the Holy Spirit fire of the church. And so all of Israel's history, really we could say all of human history, but here we can just say all of Israel's history has been pressing forward towards this final age of Messiah, the arrival of God's kingdom into the world from above. This is what Paul means in Galatians 4 when he says that Christ came at the fullness of time. Israel had laid out all of the, the, the foundation upon which the redemptive work of God could be revealed. Then God has come in Christ in the fullness of time. That's why he says that in the previous ages of human history, they have all been typologically pointing towards this last great eschatological, eschatological age of Messiah in which the church now lives. So Jesus often spoke of the age to come. If you've read the Gospels, he will frequently refer to the age to come. And what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, is that the age to come has come. On the other side of Christ's resurrection, the age to come has finally appeared. 
This is not just another series of events on the earthly timeline. It has appeared above and beyond the confines of this world. And praise God that it has because what humanity needs is not just more earthly deliverances like what God has done for the nation of Israel. Those were just types and signs. What humanity needs is an escalated, higher deliverance that comes from Christ. Humanity needs more than deliverance from earthly, tyrannical pharaohs. We need deliverance from the cosmic, tyrannical power of sin and Satan. That's the true tyrannical power in the universe. Humanity needs more than the blood of a lamb to temporarily cover over our sin in an external way. We need the blood of God himself shed on the cross to cover over our sins and to purify us in a deep internal way. Humanity needs more than a crossing through the shadowed valleys of the Red Seas of this world. We need a crossing through the shadowed valley of death. Humanity needs more than bread from heaven that which we eat still cannot keep us alive. We need the bread of God himself, the word made flesh, the bread that keeps us alive even while we die. Humanity needs more than natural water from a rock that only leaves us to thirst again. We need the miracle drink of God's own blood, the fountain of living water that eternally satisfies the soul's deepest needs. And humanity needs more than the promised land of earthly glory. We need the promised land of new creation and heavenly glory. And now with the death and resurrection of Jesus, the age to come has finally come. And you and I live at the fullness of time, at the beginning of the fulfillment of of the ages, and the hope of the world has at last appeared on the horizon of human need. The advent of Christ is not just another example of the same old things. The advent of Christ is the antitypal fulfillment of Israel's entire story. And so throughout this sermon series, we're going to be looking to Israel's redemption arc to help us understand what it means for us to live now in this age, to understand our own redemption arc. This is what Paul is getting at in verse 11. In verse 11, he says that these things related to the nation of Israel have been written down for our instruction. These things were written down about Israel's history, recorded in the Scripture, so that you and I could look at Israel's story and we could learn the truth of our own story, our own archetype, antitypal fulfillment of Israel's story. We learn about who we are and the hope that we have in Christ by looking at Israel's story. So just like the governor, Judea, learns about the emperor's ring, learns about the emperor, by looking at the wax seal, so too we learn about our cosmic victory in Christ by looking at the wax seal of Israel's earthly victories. All right, so that's what the sermon series is going to be about for the next four weeks through Lent. And as I close out this sermon this morning, I want to 
leave us with perhaps just a single pastoral admonition. Let's stop living with the expectations of Israel's typological timeline. And let's start living with the expectations of the church's eschatological timeline. Israel was taught to expect miraculous deliverances to their earthly problems. So for Israel, faith and faithful obedience brought victory over Israel's enemies. It brought rain for their crops. It brought the fruit of the womb and the fruit of the vine. Israel's faithful obedience to God brought earthly blessings, primarily. And God still sometimes grants earthly blessings to us even here in this church age. But Jesus, who is the centerpiece of the church's redemption arc, has not come chiefly to give us earthly blessings. He has come to give us greater heavenly blessings. It's a wonderful thing to be delivered from physical sickness by the miraculous power of God. Who does not rejoice at such an earthly deliverance? But it is a greater, higher, divine thing to not be delivered from our physical sickness and to rejoice in God all the same. Because more than anything, God wants us to find true and lasting hope and joy. And he knows that true and lasting hope and joy can only be found in him. It cannot be found ultimately in the things that he gives us. It is not found in earthly victories. It is not found in Israel's story. Moses led his people to earthly victory and conquest. And Israel rejoiced in God in the midst of their earthly victories. And that was Israel's glory. But Jesus leads his people to heavenly victory, to heavenly conquest. And the church is called and is taught in Christ how to rejoice in God in the midst of earthly defeat. That is the greater and higher calling and the glory of the church. To have our hope not be in the things of this earth working out for us but to have our hope be fundamentally and fully in God, even when the things of this earth do not work out for us. Jesus calls his church here at the dawn of the age to come to this higher, holier calling that he called Israel. But he's also calling us to a higher, deeper, lasting joy. Because the true joy of the world is not found in the things of this world. True joy is found in God himself, who is an eternal, pulsing, teeming ocean of joy. And that brings us then to communion. As we think about the table we're about to approach, we are reminded that in our communion, right here before us, the age to come, has finally come. The Son of God has at long last crested the dark horizon of this world 
The power of Satan and sin have been broken. And the church no longer needs fear, earthly defeats, and earthly hardships. Because death itself is vanquished in the power of Christ. And the spirit of joy has been poured into our hearts. And then through us has been unleashed out into the world. And our hope of heavenly reward is matched only by the greatness of God himself. Because God himself is our heavenly reward. As we'll see throughout our sermon series, the sacramental life that we now possess has reached its consummation. And so we must rejoice in what God has given to us in Christ because he has given us himself and it is the greatest gift that we could ever ask for from God. God, thank you that you gave us Christ. Thank you that you gave us yourself. Lord, we thank you for all the stories of deliverance that we read in Israel's history that helps us understand and make sense of what it means to be delivered by you from the true and greater powers of sin, death, and the devil. And God, thank you for all the the little signs of deliverance that you gave Israel that remind us of the deliverance that you are for us in your Son. Lord, we thank you for him. We confess this morning, Lord, that we need you. Every hour we need you. We don't need chiefly the things that you give us. We need you. So God, give us yourself and give us eyes to see who you are. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.